Welcome to Digging the Dharma, where we dig into the Buddhist Dharma and explore ways of bringing these 2,500-year-old teachings into our lives. I'm Doug Smith of Doug's Dharma on YouTube and the Online Dharma Institute. And I'm John Aaron, teacher at New York Insight Meditation Center and Space to Meditate and an MBSR teacher and trainer. Hey, John, how you doing? Great to okay. see you again. Yeah. Likewise. Sunny day here. Yeah, we've had some sun. Yeah. Which is very pleasant. Any bears up there? No bears. No bears, fortunately. We've had bears in the past, but uh, I'm pretty good at taking in our bird feeders so at night, so that keeps them away. Yes. Well, we don't have bears here. Unfortunately, we have rat, rats, but, you know. Yeah. It's kind of <laughs> I'm not, sh- not sure which is better, but. <laughs> uh, depends on where you are, but the rats are getting pretty bad in New York right now, but yeah, pandemic rats. Anyway, that's not a very pleasant topic, so let's move <laughs> on. <laughs> I think we were going to discuss uh, mindfulness again, go, go back to that wonderful well of early yeah. Buddhist practice, how mindfulness can be reflected in, in our ordinary lives, how, it's, how we practice with it on a day-to-day level. Yeah, and, and you know, we talk a lot about, in, in teaching uh, and in our own experience, we talk about the fruition of our practice. And, you know, we're sometimes looking for something really big. And I think it's really important to kind of come to those things which are actually small experiences we have, which point to some level of fruition. Like, oh, I saw something I didn't see before. And it changed my experience and it changed my reaction to that. So I think it's really kind of interesting to look at that and because it comes up every day. Yeah, and and I think a lot of people, myself included, when you sort of get into Buddhist practice, you expect that the that the point of the practice is to have some enormous life changing satori, the kind of experience that they always talk about in Zen, where you're, you know the sky opens and something you know right. amazing happens. <laughs> and well, actually, they also talk about the other thing in Zen too, which is that it's you know it's more Just- chopping wood and carrying water. Yeah, and so how, how does the sky open while we're chopping wood? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the question. Right. And what does it mean when the sky opens? You know, and and uh, you know, I love those images, and and that that can happen too, of course. And and then and then we start looking for it again. But that's actually not necessarily the freedom that we're looking for. Right. You know, we we might mistake it for that. You know, the freedom is really the freedom in choice. The freedom in the freedom that comes from knowing what's really true. And seeing that clearly as we go through our day, the way that foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, are sort of laid out, while every one, that is the foundations of the body, foundation of Vedana, feeling tone, foundation of mind, chitta, and foundation of the dharmas, while each of those can certainly be a standalone, when I, at least, you know, sort of take in what's happening in my moment-to-moment experience, and you realize they're always sort of interacting. So we've talked a little bit about this this establishment of Vedana, the the foundation of Vedana. Feeling tone. Feeling tone, tonality of experience, the affective response that we have to something, affective response that we have to something. It's kind of, in many ways, the linchpin, right? And, you know, when we start to 
when we when we feel some level of stress or suffering arising, right, that's the moment to just stop and look, right. So it's this investigative quality that comes in. It's like what's really happening now, and that's where our practice starts to take hold. You know, when you say that to people, and even I think in my own experience, it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, I can't just stop in the middle of something and look at that. <laughs> There's no time for that, right? Because <laughs> we think it takes so much time, but actually that brings us, you know, to the practice of meditation, which is where we can sort of practice it in one way and then take it on into life in another way. So we can you know, experience in meditation, I can experience an unpleasant thought arising and I can experience my, my proliferation around that unpleasant thought or an unpleasant physical sensation arising and my proliferation around that unpleasant physical experience and start to see the two as very different, right? The thought versus the experience. And as soon as that's seen, there's a shift in the perception of what's happening. And also, I would say there's another another aspect of that, which is that you can have an experience, like of something that you've done. Let me just say for myself in my life, you know, an experience of something that I've done, which would have been experienced in a positive way. And in fact, when I was doing it, was experienced in a positive way, but that when I sit with it in meditation and look at it in detail and see how I am feeling it right now in the experience that I'm having in meditation is not positive at all, such as getting angry with somebody. You know, during the time when when I'm angry, uh, this is how I would have experienced it uh, several years ago, but I mean, I can't say I'm entirely out of it now. There is a rush. There's a pleasant rush of of energy mm. that comes with that. And it's experienced in a certain sense positively, but in a non-reflective sense positively. And what is experienced, I think, as positive really is the energy. But then when you sit, when I sit with it, my recollection of it, as well as the remorse, perhaps, that comes with it, or whatever it is. I mean, it's just fe- the general tone of the mind is one of 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 pain, of of, of suffering, of unpleasantness. It's just, it's just, it doesn't feel good, and. To me, that's the most direct way of learning how to act in the world. Mm. One of the things that struck me about Buddhism in general, about when I learned about the way the Buddha broke up the mind into these various parts, is why is this Vedana here? You know, he has this part of the mind. I mean, one of the four parts of the mind is this part of the mind that discuss that sort of tells you whether something is pleasant or unpleasant. And it's like, why is that even there? What? But then you see how important it is to practice. It's key. It's, as like you say, it's the linchpin of practice. You know, and, and we find ourselves in life, first off, I mean, that, that what you just were describing, you know, the sort of, so I describe one way of experiencing meditation, what we then take into life. And then you're, you mentioned, you know, what we experience in life and then reflect back on it in meditation. I mean, that's just a beautiful way of practicing, right? Because we, we, have that all the time and and but with vedna we start to see oh yeah my life is nothing more than like trying to get the pleasant to push away the unpleasant and back and forth and we're sort of like ping pongs to those experiences um because we think that our happiness is going to only come from pleasant experiences right and 
uh, or pl- a pleasant feeling rather, right? So as you describe, and there's nothing more juicy than self-righteous anger, right? I mean, it's like an addictive feeling, you know, that feeling like I'm right and, and you know, you're going to know about it, you know, and then, you know, you look back at it and realize, what a horrible feeling afterwards, right? So it's like that pleasant feeling becomes pretty yucky, you know, a few hours later. And then when you meditate and, and start to explore it, it's like, oh, yeah, maybe that wasn't so good, right? So, so we have these moments throughout the day where we just kind of see the mind inclining one way or the other towards something or away from something. And, and, and then we see the, the habit mind of thinking and, and the emotions that arise come out of that. Or, you know, an emotion comes up through some experience that's, you know, really positive emotion and we like that and we want it to hang around. And then when it goes, we are disappointed. Um, so it's just this idea of the, the quality that can develop of, you know, a sort of balanced attention and a balanced appreciation for the the tonality of an experience and recognizing that it's going to change anyway. And I, I know of uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were exploring this in a class and a student was saying how she was sitting at a playground and, you know, really had a pleasant sense watching children play in the playground. And then the mind kicked in and said, oh yeah. And, you know, what a pity you don't have kids and never will have kids. And, you know, so this, pleasant tone was tinged with this emotion of sadness, which, you know, veered on the unpleasant because that's how one often interprets sadness or the mind often receives sadness as being something unpleasant as opposed to just a human emotion. There's so much to explore just in those two foundations of mindfulness, the Vedana and the mindfulness of mind. And what, what, what's interesting about the teaching, and I was just having a discussion recently about this and, in teaching the sutta itself is how the teaching can be rather clinical. I mean, when you read the sutta, that sutta in particular, the Satipatthana sutta, the language can be really clinical in a sense. You know, you experience this, know that you're experiencing this. Experience that, know that you're experiencing that. But then it sort of goes into this part about seeing it internally in yourself and seeing it externally in others or seeing it externally however. And the moment you start to experience the external, the, the moment there's that realization of the external that whatever I am, whatever is causing my suffering, it's also causing the suffering of others. Then compassion just sort of naturally arises. So it, it's, it's this, uh, you know, implicit thing that comes out of the explicit experience of, of that level of suffering. Yeah. I mean, the, the texts in general, these early texts are very compact. It's like they're they're distilled down into the sort of essence of the practice. Yeah. And you've really got to read them in a way to unpack them. As you're trying to do, and as so many people are trying to do, bring it into your life. And and when you do that, then you begin to see how how much is is suggested by these very short, sort of pithy little phrases. Yeah. And I think also we have to at least imagine the being of the Buddha. <laughs> Yeah. That is the man of the, 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 the actual person as being mm-hmm. this compassionate being. And, you know, we have no idea what he really sounded like or how the language out of his mouth sounded and how we would have, re- how it would have been received by others. 
And so all we have are these words that are translations of other words. And even when you read, you know, those, those people who can read it in the original language of Pali or ancient Chinese or whatever, it's still an interpretation. You know, it's still that pithy, you know, the pithy language itself. We have to recognize that there's, there's something between the words that's really important to realize is there. When you talk about the Satipatthana Sutta, that is a prime example of a sutta that's been constructed over many, right. probably over a couple centuries anyway, that, that there was a lot of stuff that probably is not original to the sutta that was added later. It, you know, I mean, like many suttas, it, it, it gathered together a lot of disparate information from around the other suttas that sort of seemed probably seemed useful to the people practicing at the time, like, you know, this should be here, so let's just put it here. Not to say the Buddha wouldn't have taught it that way, he probably would have, but, yeah. you know, it does seem to have had a, a a history of sort of becoming bigger and bigger over time. Yeah, and even when you read the suttas related to, say, Vedana, they're so yeah. different than how it arises in the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, but that's, so it's, it's helpful to read those others, or at least know of those others, to mm-hmm. say, oh, yeah, of course, here's how it Here's how it unfolds. You know, as we take these practices and, and, and as we kind of understand the workings of the mind-body-heart complex in terms of this big teaching or this big compilation of teachings, it, it really brings in the investigative and curiosity factor of practice of just kind of exploring uh, what is really true in this moment. Where is this stress or suffering or discomfort or whatever it is, this dukkha? Why is this arising? What's going on that's bringing this in? And that's where things really get interesting. <laughs> and sometimes it's done reflectively in practice, in, in formal meditation practice, but sometimes it really can be done, if not in the moment, at least shortly after the moment to say, oh, you know, was that really a skillful action or, or what? What did that result from? I mean, as you say, it, the, the investigation, this curiosity is so important to our practice and indeed is part of what leads us to eventual uh, enlightenment if such a thing is possible. But it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of curiosity because, and, and maybe you can speak to this. I mean, I have, a, I have a hard time even putting it into words because it's not a curiosity that gets you in the story, you right. know. And that's, I mean, the curiosity that gets you into the story is so much of what, you know, sort of Western analysis, you know, and and psychology is all about, is getting into the story and the past, or, you know, Lord knows, you know, getting into the story of who did what to whom and, you know, who's <laughs> responsible for it and all that. Right. But this is a totally different kind of curiosity, which is, it's a curiosity of seeing it in the moment, you know, right now, how you feel it in, in, as we, as you're so good at describing in the body right now, of what kinds of thoughts are giving us pain right now, what kinds of experiences are giving us pain right now. I always suggest that people avoid when they're working with, with curiosity, when they're, when that's arising, it's like to ask everything but the why question, Mm. (laughs) you know, so it's really what is happening, where is it happening, how is it happening? Now, there are two sides to the why. One is, of course, the psychological side, right? The other could be related to, and this is, I'm almost hesitant to bring it up because it's such a big thing. It's related to, you know, dependent co-arising. It's like, 
oh, why is it why is it happening? Because this happened and that happened and that happened and then that happened, and we can get lost in that. Well, craving. You can talk about the second noble truth anyway. Right. It comes yeah. up from craving. So it's it's arising due to craving. Well, what was the craving? Yeah. To avoid the why in this in the story sense is is key. Because then you just get lost in the story, which just is a form of self-identification. And it's not that the story might not be really important, right? But that's kind of going to it from a different place. And you can replay the story until you're blue in the face and you won't have gotten rid of your suffering. You know, the suffering will still be there. It's also a lot of um, what they call in Buddhism, papancha, the, this prolifer mental proliferation or rumination. I can say from my own example that I know about this a lot, you know, when I get into trouble, my first thought and my first tendency is to go into kind of a ruminative state of just sort of running over whatever the problem is in my mind, as though seeing it for the thousandth time is going to somehow solve the problem. Right. Um, and that's what getting into the story is about, you know, where yeah. it's all sort of cognitive, yeah. trying, to figure trying to figure things out. Um, yeah. And in a certain sense, it's good to have the sort of, you know, second noble truth right there, because essentially what the Buddha is telling you is, well, at least in this way of telling things, it's very simple. It, you know, it's just one step, right? <laughs> it's just the craving. You know, so that sort of, in a certain sense, can help short circuit that kind of thought process, because he's just saying, okay, it's just one thing. And once you figure that out, that's all there is to figure out. So right. the rest of it is something different. Yeah, it's true. And and so in this in these practices, as we as we really bring them into our lives, um, as long as we've integrated the noble truths into this, is that we have to recognize those moments when we are experiencing the third noble truth, you know, which is just this moment of freedom, that 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 is possible. It is possible to be free from dukkha, if only for a second or two, you know. But but recognizing that, so recognizing that oh this. Dukkha is arriving because I want this or I don't want that or I was uncomfortable here and it made me comfortable, it made me feel good to say this or whatever it was. And then when that is seen clearly and we are suddenly or at least rather momentarily released from that level of suffering, that has to be recognized. Or it's important to recognize it. Let's put that. I mean, sometimes they fly by so fast we don't recognize them. But when they don't fly by so fast and it's there, then, oh, right. Yeah. So, so there's this moment of fruition, the fruition of freedom. And it gives you, it gives you a lot of energy to continue along with the exactly. practice, I think. Exactly. Because one thing we have to keep in mind with all of this is that uh, it's a long-term practice. It's not the sort of thing that you can expect to you know, get through in a couple of months or a year. <laughs> so, I mean, unless you're really, really lucky and not, you know, but for most of us, it's, you know, it's a lifetime practice. And so you need these, these little breakthroughs every once in a while, these, these moments of, of seeing things anew that give freedom, as you say, to sort of keep the practice alive and keep, uh, keep energy, keep energy to the practice. Yeah. Even, even if you have big moments of, of release in a sense, release from suffering. It's still a lifetime's practice because, you know, it's like, it's just going to come back. And, and we, we start to see more quickly, of course, what's bringing it back or what's causing it. 
And it's the seeing it more quickly, which is where the practice is bearing fruit on a kind of ongoing basis. And, um, yeah. Or the, or the Vedana, like the, we were talking about the positive and negative, that the negative states are there, but they're not as pronounced as they would have been a year or two ago in the same situation. You know, or, you know, frankly, it, you, you know, you, you go through, like, you go through periods in your life where you're doing things that are causing your suffering to yourself and you just stop doing them, or at least you stop doing them as much. Mm. Uh, and so, even if you don't have a breakthrough moment where you're saying, oh, I'm, you know, that's what liberation might look like, at least you're saying things aren't so bad, <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's that's actually an important thing to point out because you, I know when I've worked with people and who are dealing with serious pain, so of course you know the pain initially is received as unpleasant because it is, and then there are those moments where oh the pain is a little bit less, and just that little bit less is suddenly a very pleasant experience. You know, yeah, it may come back, but there's the knowing that it'll also the pleasant can come back too, and just. Sort of seeing the impermanent nature of these sensate of these uh, feeling tones, you know, like everything else, they're constantly in a state of flux. And as you were pointing out before, you know, where a pleasant feeling tone caused by an unskillful action or an unskillful moment of speech, unhelpful emotion, anger, whatever, first it's pleasant and then it's unpleasant, and then that's a place to look, and then. We haven't talked much about the one in between, <laughs> neither pleasant nor unpleasant, often mm. referred to as neutral, which is probably where we are most of the time, but we don't really think of it. You know, one could interpret the neutral feeling tone as being a, perhaps one of boredom or just one of ease, too. I mean, it depends on sort of what's what the conditions are that it's arising from. I mean, the Buddha says that the, the the middle tone is associated with ignorance. So probably he would consider ease to be a positive way of framing mm. that. Probably he would think of that as a positive, whereas the, you know, the neutral tone is, is one that leads us into a kind of a state of dull kind of dullness. Yeah. Dullness. Uh, I mean, whereas, you know, one of the interesting you know, ironies of practice is that the unpleasant tone is, if we use it properly, can be a real spur to, I mean, it, it can be useful, it can be helpful to to feel the pain because it, it actually pushes us to investigate, like you were saying before, and to make some change that may make a, a difference. Whereas the neutral you sort of sit with and who cares, you know, and you sort of don't do anything. Well, the one thing we haven't gone into, which we can touch on briefly here is in the teaching, right, he refers to the worldly Vedana and the un, mm, un, yeah, unworldly Vedana and how that's related to our, really more directly to our practice, to our meditation practice or to the pleasant feeling tone that may arise through tranquility and concentration and samadhi, which is a, a feeling tone that we, I don't want to say we can, we should cling to, but it's a feeling tone that we should take joy in. Take delight in when we when it's received, uh, when it's a, you know when we experience it, and you know some people relate the some teachers I should say and and this is an interesting point of discussion would 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 receive the neutral unworldly feeling tone as a sort of place of equanimity, 
It's one way of looking at it. And then there are others that say, well, this neutral thing, it's, it's never neutral. It's always sort of some mm -hmm. gradation of pleasant to unpleasant, you know. So mm -hmm. it's a, we can get really technical on these, <laughs> in these things. And it's, there's no need to do that. It's just recognizing um, that so much of our experience doesn't necessarily have a strong, when it comes to the worldly, doesn't necessarily have a strong tone one way or the other. There's just life happening. Right. Um, and probably good to say about a little bit about the unworldly negative, mm -hmm. which is the time when we fall away from practice for one reason or another. And we, or we don't live up to our practice in one way or another. And we see that and we see our own unwisdom. And it's not, it's not painful in the sense that, it, you know, physical pain or the sort of normal emotional pain, but it's more of a, a sort of a subtler pain. Unpleasant, unworldly Vedana could also be related to the hindrances when they come up sure. within practice, you know, which isn't falling away from practice. It's just, it's not pleasant at the moment, if, or it can be received as unpleasant at the moment. Right. You know, it can very quickly turn into something pleasant, like, oh, it's unpleasant to have this hindrance of, of agitation in the mind. And, and yet, oh, and then we notice when it's no longer agitated. And then so right away, it becomes a pleasant, you know, that could be at a moment of samadhi in that moment where the the uh, activation has kind of ceased or it ceased to bother us rather mm -hmm. yeah so it's such an interesting territory to explore and it'll come up you know in other discussions we have obviously because it's such a core it's really why we practice and just kind of how we how we look at things how we experience things and the various ways in which the teachings look at it from you know different lenses and different points of view so and they all come back around to the same place yeah. it's all interrelated yeah. yeah to be continued as always <laughs> yeah i hope this has been helpful and if you have any comments or questions feel free to write us and the email address and and our contact information will be in the notes to this podcast and yeah we hope to connect with you soon yeah and continue the conversation right. yeah thanks doc thanks a lot john Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider leaving a review on your local podcast directory. It would help us out a lot. You can check John out at johnaaron.net and Doug at Doug's Dharma on YouTube and his Patreon page linked in the notes. You've been listening to Diggin' the Dharma with Doug Smith and John Aaron. Mm -hmm.